Good morning. <clears throat> I'm Kathy Crosby, and I've been attending TCC since January. And the reading today is taken from 1 John 5, 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin, sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, <clears throat> even on a long weekend, it's good to be together with so many of you. And uh, I don't know if it was just me, but man, you guys were singing today. And uh, I love that. We love that as a church, right? We want to be a worshiping church, and a worshiping church is a singing church where we use these songs to express our praise and our thanks uh, to God. Well, uh, for the past three months now, we've been studying John's first letter under the theme of certainty in confusing times. And today we come to the last message from 1 John. We'll still look at uh, 2 and 3 John uh, before September. But we have found this letter written late in the first century to the church in Ephesus to speak powerfully to our own lives here in the 21st century. It's a compelling letter, striking in its simplicity but it also at times is rather direct, and it raises lots of questions. We have questions, don't we? In an age of doubt and confusion, sometimes we wonder, is there anything that we can be certain about? Even when we see claims on advertisement, uh, there's a little part of us that goes, you know, does it really work like that? Can I trust that? To questioning what news we can or cannot believe, we live in a culture of doubt. When we think about the future, we may wonder what kind of world our children and our grandchildren will grow up in. Is there anything that we can count on to give us any kind of confidence? And today, as we come to these final verses in chapter 5, we are reminded again that John wrote to reassure his readers 
that despite their circumstances and the false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were calling into question important doctrines of the faith, that there were truths that they could be absolutely certain about. You see, many believers were beginning to doubt their faith and even questioned what they believed. They were wondering if it was really true, if they were really Christians, and if there was anything they could count on when it seemed like the world was falling apart around them. Today, 2,000 years later, aren't we prone to some of the very same doubts? I believe most believers at some point question their faith. Maybe you're questioning it right now. Maybe you made a commitment to Jesus some time ago, but it doesn't seem to have the same meaning to, to you. Maybe you've been struggling with sin in your life, and you're wondering, you know, how could I be a real Christian and still do and think some of these things? Maybe you've read something recently, or heard a speaker, or read a post on Facebook, and that has caused you to question your faith on an intellectual level. Or maybe you look at other Christians and they seem to have so much joy and passion and power and you wonder, what's wrong with your faith? Is it real? Am I really saved? And in a time when it seems to be harder than ever to be sure of anything, John wraps up his letter with this little phrase, so that they may know. In these final verses, John uses the word know over and over and over again. That you may know. Not that you may wonder or not that you may wish or hope. That you may know. Know for certain. This word know is very important to John. It appears more often in this chapter than in any other chapter in the New Testament. There are actually two words for know in the original Greek. Most of the time in this chapter, John uses the word that describes the state of knowing rather than the process of knowing. So for example, if I say, I know I am married, I am declaring something to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt. But when I say, I know what it means to be married... That's a knowledge that I'm still learning and growing into. You see, one kind of knowing is complete and factual. The other is maybe more progressive and experiential. While both kinds of knowing are true of a Christian, it's this first kind of knowing, the the certain kind of knowing that John is emphasizing here. So let's work our way through these verses And we're going to discover at least five things that John wants us to know today. Things to be certain about. To have complete confidence. And so he says, first of all, that you may know eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I invite you to take your Bibles if you have them with you. If you need one, there are some on the two cabinets back by the, by the doorways. You can pick one of those up. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have that as a gift this morning. But picking it up in verse 13, the, where, uh, where our reading this morning was read from. John writes, I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
And so John first states that he's writing to believers, those who believe in Jesus, so that they would know with absolute certainty that they have eternal life. Now you know it's not uncommon to doubt, but it is important to come back and stand on this vital truth. You see, John implies here that it's possible to be truly saved and yet not have that assurance of of your salvation. And the problem with that lack of assurance is, of course, that it robs you of your joy in the Christian life. And when John refers to these things right at the beginning, he says, I write these things to you, he means everything that he's written previously. And one of the things that we have said uh, throughout this study so far is that you will find woven throughout this letter three tests of faith. Do you remember them? The first is the theological test, right? What is it that you believe? It's really the test of true belief. Do I believe the truth about Jesus? Do I believe what is true? And do I truly believe that? The second is the moral test. How do I then live? Ultimately, this is the test of true obedience. And then the third test is the social test, or how do you love? This is the test of true love. This is about loving others. We, you know, we can't simply say that we love and follow God, because that's what we believe, but then not love others. It's just inconsistent. It's incompatible. But eternal life, we should make no mistake, is a gift from God. It's not a reward that we earn. And it starts with believing in Jesus. And that belief isn't just some intellectual decision, nodding your head in agreement that yes, he is the son of God. But a follower of Jesus, one who has put their hope and belief in Jesus, is one then who trusts in, relies on, and is fully committed to living for and in Christ. Right? It's not just an acceptance of an idea, but it's a complete commitment of your life to Jesus. Right? True faith, yes, it rests on Jesus, but it is authenticated through the transformation of our lives. See, this isn't just, uh, you know, with every eye closed and every head bowed and a raising of a hand. It's not even walking an aisle to the front of the church or standing up at a campfire at camp. That may be a start and a good start, but if there never is any life change that follows, never any actual evidence of following Jesus, never any surrender to the lordship of Jesus, then maybe we've missed the point entirely. So, do you believe in Jesus? If you do, John says that you can be certain about eternal life. That you have it now. Last week we we looked at uh, the first, or verses 6 through 12, and I just draw your attention back to verse 12, where there John wrote, he says, Whoever has the Son, okay? Whoever has the Son, he says, has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so I asked then and I ask you again today, do you have the Son? 
And if you say an unequivocally, yes, I do. I put my faith and trust in him, and as best I can, I'm seeking to follow it out with the strength that he gives me. And if that's true of you, then you can be confident in the fact that you have eternal life now. Live in it. Walk in it. Enjoy it. Experience the joy and, 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 this, and just the, the abundant life that Jesus has to offer each of us now. Eternal life is a present possession. Secondly, John wants us to be very clear that we may know answered prayer. That we know answered prayer. Verses 14 to 15 now. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Believer, do you know that you are not alone and that God is with you? And that when you talk to God, he hears? Right? It seems so straightforward, but I think sometimes we, we wonder, we, we kind of question that. But a relationship with God is marked by an ability to talk to him and hear from him. And so first, we talk. We have confidence that God expects, in fact, welcomes us to come and talk to him. And we can approach him with boldness, not with fear and trepidation, but with boldness. Like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with what? You know this verse, confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, God is our Father. And so we approach Him, yes, in reverence and submission, but yet our conversation can be open and relaxed. It's Abba, Father, which is Abba is Aramaic for Father, Daddy. We can come to Him. And notice that we can ask anything. That's the word that John uses there, anything. Right? There is nothing that a child cannot ask his father. That nothing is off limits or out of bounds. But before we think that that's just a blank check to ask him for whatever we want, notice a very important qualification. He says we ask anything according to his will according to his will. Now, this likely isn't maybe new to you. If we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what did he teach them to pray? He says, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So there's an awe and a reverence directed to him. Your kingdom come. What? Your will be done. Your will be done. See, this, is, this isn't a message on prayer, and so I know I'm just kind of skipping over that because it's a point in the fuller context of that. But I think it's important to know that when it comes to prayer, that there's nothing wrong with expressing what we want, what our desires are, frankly, even what our will is. But we must qualify the ask with, if it is your will, if it is your will. And so we talk, and God listens, 
And other times God talks and we listens, but that's a message for another time. But John, though, is clear. We ask and God hears us. He listens. I think we just need to know that again. Because sometimes, I think even in our prayer life, we sit there and we go, but God, are you really listening? I I don't see the answers, right? I don't see any movement. I don't see any change. it, It just feels like I'm praying and my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You see, for God to listen, in fact, is to answer. John writes, we know that we have what we asked of him. You know, there are three basic answers to our prayers. Yes, no, and not yet. And we may need to wait at times. And waiting is usually really hard because the answers don't come quick enough. We don't see the change fast enough. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes about one of his uh, prayer encounters with God. And he writes that in order to keep him humble and dependent himself, he was given, he calls it, a thorn in the flesh. Nobody's really sure of what that thorn actually was, but as you can imagine, it caused him some pain and discomfort and frustration and everything else. And he says there in verse 8 of chapter 12, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, some might say, well, that's his first mistake. He should have just prayed once, named it, claimed it, and it should have been done. Others might say, well, why did he stop it three times? Why didn't he keep praying? We talk about being persevering in prayer. But the reason none of that is true is because God spoke to him. He answered his prayer and made it very clear that no, he wasn't going to remove the thorn in his flesh. It was something that he would have to live with. Why? He says, because my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is going to be enough for you. Right? Even as we were singing this morning, you know, know, through every storm, he is still Lord of all. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And how does he say it? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? So Paul had this thorn in his flesh that in a sense weakened him, but made him then as a result more dependent on God. And then through his weakness, he was made strong. Because God enabled him. God empowered him. God strengthened him. You see, ultimately, prayer allows us then ultimately to align our wills with God's purposes. It's not so that we can get whatever we want. We can ask him anything, absolutely, but according to his will. Now, verses 16 to 17 are admittedly difficult verses. I'm sure when Kathy was reading them, you're like, huh? What is he going on about there? And I honestly really don't want to get too deep into it because I'm very mindful of time this morning. And maybe you think I'm copying out a little bit, and maybe you're right. Um, But let me, I will just say a couple of things anyways, because I think it's important. 
One is that John here is using this as an example of a situation that we can then pray for. It's really an illustration in that sense. He says, verse 16, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin, then he adds this confusing phrase that does not lead to death, and then we'll talk about that a little bit more. But he says, if anyone sees a brother or sister commit a sin, you should pray and God will give them life. In other words, when you see another person commit a sin, they're walking in sin, you don't talk to others about it, that would be gossip. Instead, you pray for them. Or you intercede for them. You talk to God about it, not to others. And then there is that sentence, there is a sin that leads to death. Now, many commentators have presented different theories about Uh, trying to understand what John is saying when he makes this phrase. And one thing we can say is that it seems that John's readers would have known exactly what he was referring to. I mean, he states it as if it was common knowledge what this sin was. And the sin that leads to death is most commonly referred to as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And John refers to this in Matthew 12 and in Mark chapter 3. And basically what it is, is just a hardened resistance to the truth of God as revealed in his son Jesus. Okay, It's just being hard and resistant to faith, to Jesus. And ultimately this sin leads to death because it rejects the only way that sin may be forgiven. It's not that the sin was so terrible that it it couldn't be pardoned, but it's ultimately the attitude of the sinner who refuses to find forgiveness in the only solution available to them, namely faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement for sin on the cross. And so if you reject that, that is a sin that ultimately leads to death because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin or the cost of sin is ultimately death. So, we can be certain that God answers prayer. Thirdly, John writes that you may know God's power and protection. That you may know God's power and protection. This is in verse 18. And verse 18, 19, and 20 all start with, again, this phrase, we know. Okay? So we know what? With absolute certainty that anyone born of God, that is a believer in Jesus Christ, he says, does not continue to sin. Now there's like, whoa, that raises lots of questions for me. But let me continue. He goes on and says, the one who was born of God, now he's referring to Jesus, keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. Let me try to make sense of that for you a little bit. You see, John says that another thing that we may know, that we may be certain about, is God's power to overcome sin in our daily life. When John says that a believer does not continue to sin, he means that it is an ongoing, habitual sin without any break. Basically, this sin has become a lifestyle. And a follower of Jesus just simply doesn't persist in pursuing evil as a habit, right? 
And that, we should all breathe a sigh of relief, because we all know we mess up. We all sin. We all miss the mark. Because that's why John, earlier in this letter, wrote in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, if we claim to be without sin, if I got up here and say, I never sin, Tina would call me out on it. Right? But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We went in quite, quite detail right at the beginning of this series in, this, in these verses. But what about verse 9? If we confess our sins, if we never sinned, why would we have a need to confess our sins? If we never, as John said here, continue to sin, why would we need to confess our sins? So it's that continual, habitual sin that he's talking about. And John, yeah, so if, if we confess our sins, sorry, I didn't finish that verse, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John then here in chapter 5 says that God's son, Jesus, in fact, keeps the believer safe. He protects them. He, as one translation says, holds them securely. Why? Because he alone has the power and the authority to be able to protect us. And so he says, and the evil one cannot harm them. It's good to know, isn't it? That as followers of Jesus, we're kept safe by Jesus. He protects us. Not that we're immune from temptation, Right? The evil one is real and cunning and crafty and strong. Sin is an ever-present danger because of the presence of the evil one. But we need to know this. He is no match for Jesus. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In chapter 3 and verse 8, John wrote, The reason the Son of God appeared... Right? So the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. I like too how John put it in his gospel in John chapter 10 verses 28 through 30. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, out of Jesus' hand. Friends, next time you and I are facing temptation, we need to remember this. We need to know this, that we are kept and that we are protected. We're kept and we're protected by God's power and his protection. Fourthly, that we may know our position in Christ. That we may know our position in Christ. Verse 19, now, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, there's a lot packed into that little verse, but John here is really just addressing our identity in Christ. It's not the first time that John speaks to this. We're children of God. That's who we are. We're loved by him. 
And we can have complete confidence that we are God's children now and forever. But John also makes it clear that we are in a world that he says is under the control of the evil one. Now that should explain a lot to us. Right? And I think it's a good reminder for us. We forget that. But we are children of God, protected and kept, just as we saw. But we live in this broken, fallen world. And I say it's important to know that because then we no longer expect this world to deliver peace and joy and love. Because that's what we're often looking for. And then we get disappointed when we don't find it. And then we get disappointed with God. Because things aren't going our way. And we see all of these terrible things around us. And people do stupid and terrible and horrendous things. But there's a reason for that. And so John also says that Jesus has come and given us understanding. Understanding not so much in the sense of like knowing theological truth, but of this meeting and knowing and loving and walking with Jesus. So verse 20, draw your attention there. He says, we know also, here's another we know statement, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Right? So God gives us this understanding so that we can connect with Jesus, that we can meet him, that we can walk with him. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Friends, just we need to be reminded again, right? This world is fallen, but God has come into this world and brought life, life through Jesus Christ. And if you just stop and think about what's going on here for a moment, ultimately there are only two options. And we've seen this before in the leather. Basically it comes down to either we are children of God or we are children of the evil one. It's black and white. And then while we live in the world as children of God, it makes it clear that we are not to be of the world. But that doesn't mean we don't care and we shouldn't sort of separate ourselves from anything and everyone we deem, uh, you know, sort of of the world. We don't stick our head in the sand and pretend that there aren't terrible things going on around us. No, not at all. We go into those situations with love and compassion. We get involved in the needs of the world. We, we work to bring peace to the world. Shalom. All of the goodness of God restored. while remaining separate from the allure of the world and the sin of the world. In other words, we go out, we walk with Jesus, and we share Jesus with the people that we come into contact with because we love them. And lastly, and fifthly, John writes that we may know our responsibility. Verse 21, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when that was read this morning, you're thinking, that's got to be one of the oddest ways to end a letter, right? There's no nice farewell greeting, no benediction. It's just this, keep yourselves from idols. And it seems like such a strange way to end it. It's so abrupt, it's short, it's direct, maybe even a little puzzling. 
but I believe it appropriately sums up maybe the entire letter and then specifically our responsibility. Because here in these last verses, after explaining, describing all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, eternal life, answered prayer, forgiveness of sins, being kept safe and protected, children of God, all of which should make us joyful and confident and thankful, John adds, uh, oh, oh, here's what you need to do. Keep yourselves from idols. Really? <laughs> But when you stop and think about it, an idol is anything that might take God's place in our hearts. It's anything or anyone that replaces Jesus. It's what we cling to for security. And the reality is it's an idol, it's fake, it's an illusion that really replaces reality. Remember, this is John who opened this letter with this incredible statement of saying, I saw him, I touched him, I know him. And he's saying to his readers then and to us today, that is possible for us as well. And so don't ever let a fake illusion replace the real Jesus in your lives. I think it's appropriate that this morning we're going to gather around the communion table. This is a time of remembrance for us. And it's a good time for us to rehearse what we know. We know that God loves us. We know that Jesus died for us. We know that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That's when we believe in Jesus, that we're saved, that we've become God's children. We have eternal life now and forever. All of what we've been studying in 1 John. This is what we give thanks for this morning. We're thankful that we can know answered prayer. We know that because God's power and protection, we are kept and protected. We have forgiveness of sins. And we know that as children of God, we're loved by him and then sent on mission by him. And we always need to be careful to not let anyone or anything take the place of Jesus. So this is really a time of just knowing what we know to be true. And perhaps this morning for you, it's a time to reorient and recommit yourself to Jesus, thanking him for all that we have in him. And so the Bible says that we ought to examine ourselves. Maybe a good place to start for you this morning is the three tests that we've talked about. There's the test of faith, the test of, of obedience, the test of love. And ultimately is when you say, am I a child of God? Then yes, then feel free to absolutely participate in it. This is a meal for you. If the answer today is no, then we just respectfully ask that you don't participate, but we would love to have a conversation with you and introduce you to this Jesus that we're talking about today. As we have kind of come out of COVID. We've done things differently for the last number of times. Maybe you're here for the first time when we've had communion, and we have everybody just come forward and file by these tables to, to come and receive the elements. And each one of the seating sections has a table with the elements before it. And you come row by row, much like you're 
planing from an airplane or something like that. But if you're not going to receive the elements, just maybe just step aside, let people go by and let them come. And as you move to your right out of the row, you come by the front and then come in from the left side and return back to the seat that you're at. When you come, you'll find that there are actually two types of... uh, of elements here. There's the prepackaged kind of cup and wafer. You can take one of those if you prefer, if you're more comfortable with that. And then there's the cup uh, and of juice and the wafer as well. And so we just invite you to pick them up and then return to your seat. Now, if you need some assistance this morning, if you need those elements at the end, maybe just raise your hand and I can bring them to you as well. Um, but then as you return to your seat, just hold them there until we all will participate together. And during that time of kind of coming forward and sitting and waiting and reflecting, um, you can take some time to pray. Maybe there's some, some sin that Jesus reminds you of, that the Spirit reminds you of, that you pray and ask for forgiveness. And during that time, we're going to be singing some songs as well that you can participate in, or you can just stay seated and in just kind of a posture of prayer and reflection as well. So let me pray for us. Father, as we gather around these tables today and we take these elements and we know that the bread represents your body that was given for us, your, the, the cup represents your blood that was shed for us, we're reminded that because you lived and died and rose again, that we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life now and forever. And so, Father, I pray that as we take these elements and we would just in quiet reflect on the things that we know to be true today and that where there's been doubt and confusion and frustration because we don't think that you're answering prayer as quickly as you ought to, I pray that you would take one or more of these truths today and just say, yeah, that, that's, that's what I needed to hear today. I have eternal life. Maybe I was questioning that, but I know for certain because I believe and I'm walking with Jesus. Maybe I just need to be reminded of answered prayer today. Maybe I need to be reminded of your protection today and your power to to keep me, to be reminded that I'm your child today. But Lord, maybe if we're honest with ourselves, there have been idols. There are things that we often subtly and yet quite substantially just draw our attention away from you and they replace you. And Jesus, we're sorry. And I pray that you would reveal those things to us as well and that we would keep ourselves from idols today. And so Lord, use this time by your spirit to speak to each one that we may encounter the living Christ through the receiving of these elements today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.